Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Something is happening in here today. Welcome to church. Listen, if you're new to Vox, welcome. Every location right now, we're streaming to all of our locations from Worcester, Massachusetts, all the way down to Stanford. So can we say good morning to our whole church? Good morning, church. Come on, you do a little better than that. Good morning, church. We love you. Welcome to Vox. Vox is one church, nine different locations across New England. Grateful. And uh, we are right in the middle of this series called The Sacred Us, and we're talking about biblical community. I'm telling you, every single week, Week after week, it seems like God is doing a new thing in people's hearts, in people's lives, in people's minds. And so I just encourage you, if you've not joined a community group yet, there's still space for you, all right? There's still room for you. If you've not gotten a book yet, there's still opportunity to do that. And so dive in, get involved, and uh, watch what God will do in your life. Second Corinthians chapter 6 is where we'll be today in part 4 of the sacred us. The Apostle Paul writes this, we have spoken freely to you Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Turn to that person next to you and say, are you restricted by your own affections? Come on, are you restricted? That's a strange thing to say. In return, I speak as to children, widen your heart also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? For, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make a dwelling among them and I'll walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I want to speak today under the heading, take the helmet off. Take the helmet off. Let's pray. Let's open our hearts to God. I think he has a word for you today. Jesus, we love you. We invite your presence. Thank you that you are the heart changer, that you are the life transformer, that you are right here, right now, this day, in our midst and at work among us. You know every story, every detail, every person here today at every one of our locations. And so right now, we open our hearts to you. And I pray that you would meet us and that you would do a miraculous work. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said Amen, amen. Go ahead and smile at the person next to you. Come on, you can do it. Just smile at them. They haven't seen a smile maybe all morning, and it's good to smile at somebody. There you go. There you go. It's amazing how a face changes when they smile, right? 
You know, I don't like driving in storms. I don't know about you. I'm not a big fan of driving in storms. A couple years ago, I was driving in a snowstorm on 95 here in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to get through the storm. And, and the snow is coming down fast. And, and I got my windshield wipers going. I got my defogger on. I'm trying to be able to see. And, and as I'm squinting on the highway, trying to drive in the right-hand lane in this storm, in this snowstorm, I see something that I really didn't expect. I see headlights. Now, I don't see headlights on the opposite side of 95. I see them on my side of 95. And I'm like, those aren't headlights. That can't be a car. And then as this pickup truck is coming towards me on 95. Now, for all of you that don't drive yet, that's not how it's supposed to work, all right? So I pull over on the side of the road, and this truck comes flying past me, you know? And I shouted at him as he went by, the Lord bless you and keep you, you know? Something like that. I can't remember the specifics of what I shouted, but it was something along those lines as he went by. And it just, you know, it bothered me, right? And I remember pulling back onto the highway, kind of like shaking, like, whoa, like that was terrifying. Like that guy was going the wrong way down 95. You know, it's like, that's not a good plan for your life. And, you know, it got me thinking, like, what is, what is it that compels a person to do something like that? You know, why would someone do something like that? And if I'm honest, I'm not even that surprised that someone would do something like that because it feels like every day, every week, every month, every year, we hear more and more and more stories about things people are doing and things people are choosing that are irrational, that are unfathomable, that you would think that would never happen and yet it's happening, right? And so no one ever thought you'd put a bomb at the uh, finish line of the Boston Marathon, right? And yet it happened. No one ever thought that someone would hijack a plane and drive it into one of the greatest buildings in New York City. And yet it happened, right? And so thing after thing, no one ever thought that someone would take uh, a gun into an elementary school and target first graders and second graders, right? These are things that you would say that would never happen. You know, there used to be a time where people trusted People, by that time, is long gone. People don't trust people anymore. I heard someone say that trust is the ratio between the number of people who betrayed you and the number of people who have been completely faithful to you. And I think for a lot of us, through our observations, through our own experiences, that trust level has been getting lower and lower and lower for the majority of our lives. And so we live on guard. You know, we live guarding ourselves all the time. And we're living in a time where it feels like you can never let your guard down, right? You think your money is safe. Well, just give the stock market some time, right? And it's all going to disappear. And you're going to go, oh, my goodness, I've been saving for so long. I had this retirement plan, and it's just evaporated, you know. And so I thought it was safe, but it wasn't even thought your identity was safe. Just this last year, three different times, somebody stole my credit card number. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? Who bought this thing from California? And I'm like, babe, did you buy this thing from, you know, as soon as I found out it wasn't my wife, I'm like, somebody else. You know, like, and then you got to like wait for the card in the mail and kind of do the whole thing. It's like, this is such a pain. Why do people keep stealing my identity, right? Or, you know, it's not just your identity. It's not just your money. It's, it's, it's your reputation, right? All you got to do is post one stupid thing on social media. <laughs> and all of a sudden people are talking about you and they're saying things about you and your reputation is tarnished. You know, we'd like to think our marriages are safe. I just read a study recently that said that infidelity is at an all-time high. More people are being unfaithful in their marriages than ever. In 1964, 77% of Americans believed that the government would do the right thing most or all of the time. I know, it sounds like a joke, right? 77% of Americans, it's slightly lower than that now. It's like negative 20%, right? 
because there was Vietnam and there was Watergate and there was the Iraq war, there was financial crisis and all these different things. And over the last 50 years, trust in almost every segment of society has been in a catastrophic decline. Sociologists are calling it the age of disappointment. Because most of us feel like, well, I can't trust the government, and I can't trust institutions, and I can't trust a salesman, and I can't trust the church, and I can't trust my neighbor. I don't know who I can trust. And a lot of people are just sort of living like the whole game is rigged, you know, like nobody can be trusted. I'm always protecting myself. And so what do you do? What do you do when you feel like you can't trust anybody? Well, I'll tell you what you often do, whether you realize it or not. Oftentimes, on the inside, you look to protect yourself. You look to guard yourself. You look to keep yourself safe. And so you live armored up. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, the preacher says, hey, you need to go to community group, right? And you're like, yeah, sure. I asked, I asked them to buy me a shield. I, you know, Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's like, go to community group. Yeah, sure, I'll go to community group. No problem. Here I am, a wonderful Vox community group. This is great, right? And it's like, hey, uh, so tell us your story. Tell you my story. You got it. Okay, my story. Yeah, everything's fine. That's my story. What's your story, right? It's like, well, why don't you share your heart, Justin? What do you feel? What do I feel? Um, yeah, I feel, I feel fine, okay? So just back up, you know? And then it's like, well, okay, well, what do you think that Bible passage means? I don't know what it means, all right? I don't know what it means. Can we pray? Can we leave? Can we eat some chips and salsa, please, right? Like, this is how we live. Now, I know that you don't necessarily look as ridiculous as I do, right? My friend Cheech says embarrassment's a choice, so I'm going with that, right? Embarrassment's a choice, and I'm choosing not to. I like how this works. I was pretty excited about that, you know, just the little things in life. But, but this is how many of us are living, right? We're living like we need to keep it safe. And so you might come to church and you might, you know, raise your hands and sing a song and do whatever the, you know, church is kind of doing. But on the inside, if we could just see ourselves in the spiritual realm, in the emotional realm, in the psychological realm, many of us look a lot more like this, right? Where we're protected. We keep the helmet on. We keep the helmet on because we've been hit a few times. We keep the helmet on because we've been tricked a few times, right? We've been taken advantage of a few times. We've been deceived a few times. We've been hurt more times than we can count. And so we end up starting to become risk adverse, right? Where you find yourself not wanting to risk in a relationship. Not wanting to risk by putting yourself out there. And you say, oh, it's just not worth it, right? We end up, you know... Uh, consistently uh, seeing things that aren't even there, right? Well, this person said that. Well, this person said this. Well, this person thinks that. And it's not even true, right? It's not even true. You're kind of concocting these things in your mind. See, we have a whole generation that doesn't know how to do intimacy. Now, I'm not talking about sexuality. I'm talking about heart, okay? And so we don't know how to do intimacy. And so rather than learning to do intimacy, we just seek stimulation, right? We try to trade intimacy for stimulation. And the result is empty relationships. And so Paul says that the Corinthians are restricted, right? They're restricted. It literally means they're living narrow lives. They're not living wide, open, expansive lives. Instead, they're living safe. I wonder, when you look at your own heart, when you look at your own relationship, you know the Bible talks about confessing sin, 
right? It's one of the great ways that God heals us. When's the last time you confess sin to somebody else in your life? Like, when's, I mean, think about it. Like, how restricted, right? You might confess problems, right? But do you confess sin? Or do you just live safe? Do you just live guarded? Do you live restricted? And then he tells them to widen their hearts. Now, I've been thinking about that all week because widening your heart is a lot different than opening your heart. See, when you open your heart, all you got to do is turn the knob like a door and just swing it open, right? Not so painful. But widening your heart causes construction, right? It requires that you rip some things apart. Just the other day, I was helping my mom move, and uh, we had to bring a couch up the stairs. And the, 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 the stairway at the top, the doorways just was really narrow. And so we get to the very top. And, uh, and Jake was there, right? And so we're trying, to push this, we're trying to push this couch through the top of this doorway, and it just will not fit. And so we were like, oh, we're, this is not good. We're going to have to do something. So we take the legs off the couch. Didn't work. We take a piece of the trim off. Didn't work. We take another piece of the trim off. Didn't work. We take a third piece of the trim off. We're removing the floor under. I mean, it was a disaster. It was like a construction project. Finally, whatever was left of the couch got through. You know, it was like this mangled couch. And then it was like, all right, now I got to, like, put this all back together, right? See, widening your heart is a construction project. It's a construction project. It's not as simple as just opening your heart. And so let me ask you, why is it that you are avoiding vulnerability? See, to widen our hearts means to be vulnerable. It means to be able to be hurt, to be exposed, to risk being wounded. And there's something in us that just seems to avoid this, right? Why do you? Seem to avoid, come on, I'm standing up here in a football helmet. Why do you <laughs> seem to avoid yeah, being vulnerable? Maybe it's pride. You know, maybe it's pride. Maybe, maybe you are more worried about what people think of you, and you're trying to always show them the best side, right? Just trying to look good, just trying to show people your good side, trying to get them to think that you're important. You know, uh, 2020 was a little bit of a challenging year, right? And uh, it was like, don't talk about 2020. All right, just for a minute, right? It was a chaotic time, the spring of 2020. And like as a church leader, I kind of like kicked into go mode. You know, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the world and save the church and keep everything safe and protect everything. So I was just working crazy hours. I was, you know, on every phone call, on every Zoom meeting, trying to connect people, trying to help people, trying to, you know. And, and I was just, just pushing and pushing all through the summer and all through the spring of 2020. And by the fall of 2020, things were starting to unravel. You know, I was stressed. I was getting grumpy with my kids. I was getting frustrated. But in the midst of it all, I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm holding things together. I'm, I'm helping people. I'm changing hearts. I'm, you know, I'm just being a pastor in the midst of COVID. And I remember one of our elders, he said, I was praying for you. And God gave me a phrase. And the phrase was, you're headed for a wall. I mean, that's not really what you want to hear, right? And it was just like, hmm, I wonder what that means. And I started praying, and I started asking God. I said, I actually asked God. This is a dangerous prayer. I was like, Lord, help me understand my own heart, you know? Help me see. Because oftentimes, especially with pride, you are the last one to know, right? And so it was like this thing, and I was like, Lord, help me see. And, and uh, about a month after that, I got into an argument with my wife. And I know you think we're perfect, and, and, and that's not real. And so, and so we got into an argument, and we were discussing, and she was frustrated. I was frustrated. She said, you know, she says, you know, a lot of times you make me feel like your ministry is just more important than mine. And I remember when she said that, this is embarrassing, the first, first thought I had was to be defensive. 
to be like, well, don't you, don't you, I mean, I'm the, I'm the pastor. I mean, I have to, don't you understand how important the things I do? And as I was saying it, I didn't actually say it. I was thinking it and I was getting ready to say it. I caught a glimpse of my own pride, you know? And it was like, wow, in a noble attempt to serve others, the person God called me to serve first feels taken advantage of, right? And I remember in that moment just catching a glimpse of how I had really ultimately elevated myself over her. And um, somehow I started to see myself as the important one, started to see myself as a big deal. And I remember in uh, 9.37 p.m. on December 16th, I looked it up in my journal this week, 2020, 9.37 p.m., I wrote on the top of the page, the end of the big deal. And I said, God, untangle my pride that I might serve my wife. And uh, and I wonder if pride's your problem. If you're not vulnerable because you're too proud to tell anybody your problem, to be honest about your sin, to be genuine in regards to your struggle. For some of us, it's pride. For some of us, it's fear, right? Fear of being hurt. Somebody stabbed you. Somebody got you. And so now you always have your little shield up, you know, and you always got your sword ready, you know, and you're like, well, hobbit sword, but whatever it is, you know, it's like you got your little sword ready and you say, you know what, I just got to keep myself safe. I'm fear, afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of looking stupid. That's past for me at this point. I'm afraid of, you know, um, what people will think. I'm afraid of losing control, right? I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. So sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's fear, right? But I want to suggest to you today that there's something beneath the pride and there's something beneath the fear that's fueling so much of our inability to be vulnerable. I believe it's the most powerful enemy of vulnerability. And it's shame. Shame is that little voice inside you that tells you you're small, tells you you're insignificant, tells you you're flawed, tells you you're unworthy. Psychologist Carl Jung said that shame is the soul-eating emotion. Literally eats your soul. Dr. Brene Brown, said, she said that if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow. It needs secrecy, it needs silence, and it needs judgment. And so we're judging ourselves, we're judging others, we're quiet about our problems, we're quiet about our fears, we're quiet about our insecurities. We don't talk about it because we want to look good, because we're armored up, because we want to stay safe, because we've been hurt in the past. And what grows? Shame grows. It's like a cancer that's metastasized into your bones. It's in you. It is so deep in you. And it's impossible to be vulnerable if shame is ruling your heart. And so the shame goes deep. It goes really deep. In fact, in the very first story in the Bible, we hear about how God creates humanity, right? He creates Adam and Eve, and he, he makes these beautiful people in this beautiful world, and, and, and they're living free from shame. There's no shame. There's no insecurity. There's no you know, a brokenness in their relationship with God and their relationship with others. But then they choose rebellion. They choose to disobey God. And in doing so, they introduce sin into the human heart. And it's so intuitive, the thing that they, they the first thing that they do, do after they sin is they realize they're naked and they try to cover themselves. What a picture. What a beautiful, tragic picture of you and me. 
that we've been trying to cover ourselves ever since, trying to protect ourselves, trying to guard ourselves. But we have to see that sin has seeped into every motive, seeped into every desire, every ambition. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says it like this. It says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. That word really caught my attention today. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Come on, just be honest for a second. Do you see that madness in you? Well, you're anxious one minute and you're proud the next. You're insecure one minute and you're confident the next. And you're, you're, you're feeling uh, rejected one minute. And then you're feeling like you can take on the world the next and back and forth. You're devastated. You're hopeful and madness like a roller coaster back and forth, up and down. This madness. And so we ignore our pride, right? And then we feed our fears. And then we try to cover up our shame, always keeping our helmets on so that we can be safe. But I believe that the spirit of Jesus brought you here today to Vox Church because he wants to do something in your life that's supernatural where you might begin to take the helmet off and it's going to mess up your hair. Oh man, did it squeeze my head. Take the helmet off. Take the helmet off. I mean, what could happen in a church if the people of God actually decided to take the helmet off, to get real, to be honest, to confess sin, to be transparent about our brokenness, to not pretend like we figured it out, but just to be honest about where we are. If you just, what could God do? He took the helmet off. Right after Paul is very vulnerable with the Corinthians, he launches into this Old Testament montage of quotes. It's kind of strange. He's talking about all these different things. And, and at first it feels really disconnected from his command to be open, to be vulnerable, to be free. And as I studied it, as I prayed it, I started to see the connection because he's trying to show the Corinthians what biblical community should look like and how different it is from the world. And so he's kind of contrasting natural human relationships with supernatural biblical relationships, okay? And he starts by saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, a yoke is not an egg. I mean, it is that also. But what he's talking about is he's talking about a big piece of wood that connected two farm animals, right? And he says, don't be unequally yoked. And the reason that a farmer wouldn't take an ox and a donkey and yoke them together is because the two animals are of different size and they have different natures. And so because they have different natures, they don't work well together when they're plowing. And so Paul, he's not saying you can't have non-Christian friends. He's not saying you have to live in a weird little Christian bubble, never have a Christian partner for anything. No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is he's saying you're a new creation, that God's given you a new nature, that you are now a part of a supernatural community and seeing your life through the lens of what Christ has done allows you to live now a supernatural life, all right? And so he uses three specific illustrations if you break down this text and we'll just touch it today, but he uses three illustrations to elevate our understanding of the church. And so he says, hey, listen, don't you understand that you're God's temple? You remember this from a couple 
couple weeks ago, if you were with us, right? And that the glory of God rests in the gathering of God's people. And then he says, you're God's priest. Be separate from them. That was a command for the priest. And be holy, be devoted, separate yourself. And then he says, don't you realize you're God's kids, that he's a father to you and, and, and you're his sons and his daughters. And so he's saying, listen, you're sacred, you're holy, you're a temple, you're set apart, you're a priesthood, you're his children. And then he says, therefore, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. That word cleanse is an agricultural word. It means to prune or to cut back. What he's saying is, listen, in order for this supernatural community to form, it's got to be priority in your life. You got to cut back some other things. You got to cut back other things that would suck up your time and your attention and your focus because you have to catch a vision. That's what this whole series is about. You have to catch a vision of the sacred us, a vision of what's possible when the people of God come together. It's not just a social gathering, it's not just good friendship. We are a temple, we are a priesthood, we are an eternal family. And this little crazy community called the church has the potential to change the world. It has the potential to take eternal things and infuse them into temporal circumstances. It has the potential to bring hope to your heart like nothing else can. It has the potential to care for the orphans, to heal the widows, to help the forgotten, to comfort the anxious, to set free the oppressed, to raise the dead. God's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, friends. See the potential of the church. But if we're honest, this is not the frame that most of us think through, that the church isn't these glorious, majestic, incredible things. So I was asking myself, well, why does Paul connect living a vulnerable life to the supernatural potential of the church. And I believe here's why. It's because vulnerability leads us into this higher calling. That if we ever want to be what God intended the church to be, it will require that we are vulnerable because God's power can't move through proud hearts. God's power can't move through fear-driven hearts. His power can't move through shame-riddled hearts. God's power moves through vulnerable hearts. Vulnerable, honest, transparent, humble, repentant hearts. Psalm 66, 2, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. These are the ones, Psalm 66, 2, I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite who tremble at my word. That's it. Once you start to notice the pattern, you begin to see it everywhere. You start to see that God's always trying to get his people to be vulnerable, that he's been leading you on a journey of vulnerability, even to this day, right now, that he brought you here for a reason, that he led you here for a purpose, that you might learn to be vulnerable, that he might stretch you, that he might press you. You start to see it in the patterns of the Bible, right? You look at the woman at the well. If you know the story in John chapter 4, you know that Jesus exposes her sin and her shame, that she might be vulnerable with him. She leans into the vulnerability. She's honest about her brokenness, and it leads to revival and awakening across the town that she lives in, right? You look at what God does with Elijah in the cave, where he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he speaks to him in a still, small voice, and he leads Elijah to a place of vulnerability that he might be healed, and bring awakening to Israel. You look at Peter after he's, uh, Jesus rises from the dead and Peter's ashamed because he denied Christ three times and the whole story and Jesus leads him. He says, Peter, do you love me? 
do you love me? He leads Peter to a place of vulnerability so that Peter can be the leader of a great spiritual revival. In 1733, a group of young people in Northampton, Massachusetts, started coming under a deep conviction. They began confessing sin, getting honest about their brokenness, and a fire started in their church where awakening and renewal was born. And it's called today the Great Awakening, sweeping across the American colonies with two-thirds of the people in America at the time meeting Jesus and turning to faith in Christ. You look at 1906, and in Los Angeles, there was a little tiny house on Azusa Street where people began to pray, confess sin, get honest about their brokenness, and awakening, revival, and renewal broke out. See, vulnerability, it, it fosters an atmosphere that's conducive for God to do the miraculous. So just begin to imagine what could happen at Vox Church in North Haven and in Middletown and in Hartford and in Springfield and in Bramford and all across our locations, all across New England. What could happen if you and me and you and you decided, I've been wearing this thing for so long. I've been guarded and protected and safe. I've been afraid. I've been ashamed. I've been fearful, always putting out my best but not being honest about my worst. What could happen if I decided to be vulnerable, if I decided to take the helmet off. When I was a teenager, I, I got into bridge jumping. Not the best hobby, but we, you know, when you're 18, you're stupid. And so any 18-year-olds, the Lord loves you. <laughs> but it's what it is, you know. And I remember after I had my first kid, I, looking back at that time of life, and I was like, what was I doing all those days? But I, we used to look for bridges to jump off and jump into water, you know, and it was always fun. I was like, oh, it was exciting, because you never really knew how deep the water was, you know? And so, and so it, was, it was exhilarating, you know? It was, it was exciting, and we would go to all these different places, always looking for bridges and lakes, rivers, whatever, just to jump off. We jumped off some really high bridges, me and my friends. But I remember, you know, in all the times I did that, I always preferred going second. You know what I mean? <laughs> It was like we'd get up there. I had this friend, Adam. He was always willing to go first. So we'd get up there and be like, yeah, let's go. All right, go ahead. <laughs> let's go. And one, two. <laughs> and then, and then I, he'd come up for air. And I'd be like, all right, I'm going now. You know, it's like, let's just make sure you're not going to break your legs. And if you are, I'll be here to help. Uh, but I won't be down there yet. And, and so, you know, it's, it's like I, seconds better, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think when it comes to vulnerability, uh, this is one of our biggest problems, you know, because I want to be real. I want to be honest. I want to be transparent. I want to confess my struggles. I want to take the helmet off, but I don't really want to go first, you know? I don't really want to go first. And that's one of the intriguing things about 2 Corinthians 6 because it seems Paul's going first. He is just out there, right? He is just out there. He says our hearts are wide open. He's just being completely transparent, completely open, able to be hurt by these Corinthians. And if you know Paul's story, you know that's pretty amazing because he wasn't the greatest guy in the past. He grew up in a very religious home. He was zealous for his Jewish faith. And when Christianity exploded on the scene, Paul was its greatest opponent, right? And so he persecuted Christians. He murdered Christians. He threw them in prison. And he was a terrible person until one day Jesus appeared to him on the road and spoke to him, knocked him down, and revealed that he was, in fact, the Christ, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And Paul's entire life has changed. He's transformed. He begins preaching the gospel rather than fighting against it. But I would think, I would imagine that he would have extreme regrets about the people he threw in prison, about the mistakes he made, about the memories of all the terrible things he did. You'd think that they would haunt him. But one of the most intriguing things about Paul is that even though he did some absolutely atrocious and terrible things to Christians, somehow, some way, he was not defined by his past. 
Paul was living free from shame. So that means that if he can be free from shame after murdering Christians and throwing them in jail, that it's possible for you to be free from shame. Free from shame of the things that you've done, the things that you didn't do, the things that you're most embarrassed of, that if we put on the screen, you would hide and cower and be completely undone. He was free from shame. And so I want to know how. How was he free from shame? What did he do? How did he think? Where did he go to get free from shame? And what we find all through the New Testament in Paul's writings is that he got free from shame not by hiding it not by covering it up not by trying to pay God back Paul got free from shame by owning it he got free from shame by walking towards it not away from it he says things like I am the greatest of sinners he says at one point in in uh, Romans 7 he says there's nothing good that dwells in my flesh he says nothing good see Paul had rightly diagnosed the human condition where many of us have not done so, right? So he understood that we as human beings, because of our sin, we don't just need assistance. We don't just need a little bit of help. We don't just need God to come through on a few prayers. He understood that everything, even his most noble motives, were tainted by sin and by selfishness. Sin had gotten into the very core of who he is. That's why he wrote, there is none that are righteous. No, not one. And he realized, I am incapable of fixing myself. I love what Dane Ortland said about this. Look at it. He said, the only foundation on which we can build spiritual growth is the solid ground of self-despair. That's not usually the quote you find on a coffee cup, right? The solid ground of self-despair. Self-despair? The solid ground of... What does that mean? It means that if you're ever going to be able to be vulnerable, you have to know in your core that I can't fix myself. You have to know that I cannot justify myself. Therefore, I must abandon all attempts to self-justify. I'm not going to manage my ego. I'm not going to negotiate with my shame. Instead, I am going to collapse into the arms of Jesus. That's my plan. That's my only hope. That's the only thing I've got. And if you will collapse into the arms of Jesus, you will discover that he jumped first. You'll see that he already became vulnerable. This is the most profound mystery of the gospel, that God, who is perfect and blameless and altogether glorious, made himself vulnerable for you, that he actually made himself able to be wounded, able to be hurt. He didn't come as a king in the clouds. He came as a baby in a manger. You can't come any more vulnerable than that. He was exposed to the brokenness of this world. He suffered. He hurt. He was betrayed, experienced pain. He was rejected. And when he hung on the cross as the representative for my sin and for yours, he hung there naked. And people mocked him because in that moment, God was carrying my shame. He was carrying your shame so that you wouldn't have to carry it anymore. And the Bible says that he took your sinfulness that you might freely receive his righteousness. 
And so now, in the eyes of God, a mystical great exchange has occurred where he sees you through the lens of his son. And he decrees that you are blameless due to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Though you are sinful and your sins are as red as scarlet, he makes you as white as snow. And he does it because he loves you. This is the story of all stories. And friends, when Christ and his love get in your heart, it liberates you from shame. You don't have to constantly protect your honor anymore. You don't have to prove yourself and look perfect anymore. You can let down your defenses with other people. You can be honest about your brokenness and your sin and your flaws because when your heart is convinced that you are loved, you no longer need to be afraid of being seen. I'm preaching better than this section's clapping, but that's all right. We're going to get there. See, the gospel provides the internal framework to risk being vulnerable. The gospel provides for us what our hearts need in order to risk the danger of being hurt. In order to risk the danger of being shunned or even rejected. And so, through our vulnerability... As the gospel gets in my heart and the gospel gets in your heart, I start sharing about who I am and what I've been through and some of the things I'm dealing with. And you start sharing about your heart and some of the struggles you've had and some of the sins you're dealing with. And something happens in this vulnerable moment, our hearts widen. And when the conduit of our hearts widen, it creates a little space. And when that space is created, God can get in. And when God gets in, he starts moving in your life and he moves in my life and he begins to knit our hearts together and we're honest and we're transparent and then we start to suffer together and then we start to forgive one another and then we start to repent when we fail and we actually start to love one another. And friends, this is the second principle of biblical community. We've been looking at these principles that help us grow into the church. And last week we looked at the first principle in Today, we find the second, that vulnerability creates connection between you and me, between you and God, between us together. So if I take the helmet off, and if you take the helmet off, it's dangerous, it's risky, could get hurt, could be offended. You probably will be. People will fail you. (laughs) And God will meet us and work miracles. Verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. This is a word for somebody. We've corrupted no one. Taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. These verses provide some practical steps for how we can be vulnerable. You notice the first thing that Paul says is he says, make room, make room. See, in order to make room in your heart to be vulnerable, you have to understand what's holding you back. So even today, I wonder what's been holding you back from being vulnerable? Has it been your pride? Has it been your pride that you're so important that you have to look right all the time? Has it been your fear, fear of what people might think? Has it been your past? Has it been shame? This is the first thing that we have to do 
if we're going to grow in vulnerability. Identify what keeps you from being vulnerable. That's it. Identify what keeps you from being vulnerable. So right now, I want to challenge you by the Spirit of Jesus who is in this place at every single location. Identify what keeps you from being vulnerable. What is it that keeps this helmet on your head? What is it that keeps you from being open, from being honest? Identify. And once you identify it, you got to begin to invite God into it. You have to say, God, would you meet me here? Because I can't do this on my own. God, would you help the gospel become real to me? Because I need it to heal me in this area where I've been hurt. Then Paul says, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. In other words, he's saying, listen, listen, I know some people have done you wrong. I know some church leaders have done you wrong. I know some Christians have done you wrong. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start trusting somebody. And you might be here today and you've got a long laundry list of people who have failed you and ways that you've been hurt. All you have to do is look at the state of American Christianity today. And you'll find plenty of evidence to not trust anybody, right? Full of scandals, churches falling apart, this guy's stealing a million dollars, that guy's sleeping with the secretary, on and on and on, right? Trust has been broken again and again and again and again. And Vox is a large church, you know. Right now, there are far more people gathering not in this room at Vox than there are in this room. We're a larger church and we're in a bunch of different places. And as we've grown, the truth is we don't all know each other anymore. There was a time where everybody knew everybody, and that time has long passed. And so, you know, I'm a preacher, and I think there's a lot of people who wonder about me, right? Well, we don't know Justin personally, or we haven't met him, and, you know, what kind of person is he? Is he a power-hungry leader? Does he want to control everything? You know? Is he faithful to his wife? Is he actually living sexually pure, according to what the Scripture says? Does he practice financial integrity as the church Got some side hustle, making money, right? And listen, the truth is, I'm not even put off by the suspicion because I think that that's the state of affairs, right? Everybody's been wearing helmets for a long time. And there are plenty of ways that I have failed, plenty of ways that I'm imperfect. But I don't, I don't want to be rich. <laughs> I don't make millions of dollars. I don't want to be rich. I don't have an ambition to pursue comfort in this life. I don't control my own salary. I don't have access to the church's bank accounts. I drive a 2013 Volkswagen Passat. It's a great car. <laughs> it's not a Lamborghini. No, really. I mean, really. Like, the, the assumptions, and I get it, the assumptions that are sometimes made. I met my wife when I was 16. We have been in love ever since. We've been faithful to each other the entire time. And we, by God's grace, plan... <laughs> To keep it that way until we die. Thank you, Jesus. I don't want to live as a power-hungry leader. I don't want to control everything. The truth is, in this church, the vast majority of things that happen here, I have nothing to do with. And the vast majority of people who work here do not report to me. I don't oversee directly. We've tried to put things in place, all kinds of structures and accountabilities, so that this church is about Jesus, not about me or anyone else. Yeah, but... So what am I saying? I'm saying our hearts are wide open. Like, you know, our hearts, are, I, just, I just turned 40 a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, I was doing the math. I've been, I've been in ministry as my job for 23 years. I started right out of high school as a ministry job. And, you know, that's, that's a long time. I mean, it's like, gosh, 
23 years, holy moly, like, it feels longer than, than it's been, you know how that works, but, um, but, you know, if you're new to Vox, and you're like, who is this guy walking around with a football helmet on, and, you know, Google it, Google, Google us, right, you can, I mean, come on, you can find anything on Google, you can find videos of me, don't do this to make fun of me, all right, but you can find videos of me at 20 years old talking about seeing New England change, I grew up around here, talking about seeing revival in New England. This is not like a new shtick for me. Like this has been, like I've given my life to this. Like, like for my entire life, I've been praying and trusting and sowing and believing that this is the generation that will see miracles in the Northeast. And why do I say all this? Friends, I say it because if we're ever gonna do anything for God, we're gonna have to learn to trust each other. If we're gonna ever do anything great for the kingdom, it's gonna be built through vulnerability and honesty and transparency. And so the first thing we got to do is identify what keeps us from being vulnerable. But the second thing is you got to conquer your suspicions by taking baby steps. Conquer your suspicions. You can't always live suspicious of everyone and everything. He says, we wronged no one. We took advantage of no one. He's like, listen, you got to trust somebody at some point. You got to open your heart. Maybe you can have lunch with a campus pastor at one of our locations. Maybe you can share your story with a community group leader. You will find imperfect people but I promise you that if you stay long enough you will find real people we really believe this this is what we've given ourselves to because we believe it with our whole hearts verse 3 he says I do not say this to condemn you for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together I love that verse sounds like something from the three musketeers right or something from Wedding vows, you know, no matter what. This was actually a very common phrase in the day. That's what historians tell us. But it was always stated in the opposite order. It was always stated to live together and to die together. To live together, well, that's the practical way because we're alive now, so we're going to live together. And then even when we die, we're still together because we're supporting each other to the end. And so to live together, to die together. But in this, there's a typo in the Bible, see. In this section, Paul flips it. And so obviously he mixed it up, right, and made a mistake. And so we just got to erase that and flip the words back. No. No, he did it on purpose. He did it on purpose. He didn't say to live together and to die together. And you know what? I've studied this verse so many times I never saw that. He flipped it. He flipped it in a way that doesn't really make sense at first glance, right? To die together and to live together? Like, wait, no, you, you live first, then you die. And he would say, no, you die first. Then you live. He said, that's actually, <laughs> that's actually the secret of a church that knows how to be vulnerable. That's the whole thing right there. That's how you do it. See, if you're ever learned to be vulnerable, it means you've got to die to yourself. It means you've got to die to your pride and to your ego. It means you even have to die to your shame and to your fear and to your offenses of the past. To die together. And to live together. So if we're going to grow, we got a few practical things, right? we got to identify what keeps us from being vulnerable. We have to conquer our suspicions by taking baby steps. And then the third thing is we have to die to self by letting others in. By letting others in. What will it take to build a supernatural community? It will take vulnerability. Because vulnerability creates connection. I read this in a news article this past week. Journalist David Brooks wrote this. I thought it was prophetic. 
He said, trust can be rebuilt through the accumulation of small heroic acts. By the outrageous gesture of extending vulnerability in a world that is mean. <laughs> By proffering faith in other people when that faith may not be returned. Sometimes trust blooms when somebody holds you against all logic. When you expected to be dropped. It ripples across society as multiplying moments of beauty in a storm. That, friends, is what we are called to do as the people of God. Vulnerability. He already went first. So just take your cues from Jesus. Follow his lead. Take your helmet off. Would you stand with me at every one of our locations? We're going to pray. Take a moment. Close your eyes. Open your heart. You're here today. And if you're honest, maybe you've been wearing your helmet for a long time. You're even thinking, why did I come to church today? I didn't even want to hear all that. I just want to go and uh, get lunch. And I don't even want to think about this stuff. And, 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 you know, it's more comfortable to avoid it. And it's more important to engage if you've been wearing your helmet for a long time I want to pray that the spirit of Jesus would meet you right now that if it's pride or fear or shame that's keeping you back that today God would set you free that even as we sing this song today that God would lead you to repentance and that by his grace through his spirit you would choose to take the helmet off you would choose transparency and humility and vulnerability. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you build a church here <laughs> that lives humble and honest and transparent before you? Lord, would you do the work in us right now? God, I pray that you help us to die to self that we might let others in. I pray that you help us to conquer our suspicions by taking baby steps forward towards each other. And I pray that you help us to even see what's holding us back today. Holy Spirit, we repent of acting and living invulnerable for too long. I pray that the spirit of Jesus would sweep across this room, that you would tear down the walls, that we might, by your grace, take the helmet off. Holy Spirit, come now. Stretch us, push us, lead us, guide us. Holy Spirit, would you work? Even as we sing, we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church Sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.